Widow of Amazon worker who collapsed after being outside in the cold, forced to move to a smaller apartment to avoid a 23% rent increase. Couple who wanted to meet with Quebec's Minister of Transportation told to attend a party fundraiser and pay $200 to enter. Three members of a delegation to the Supreme Court have had their invitations withdrawn because of social media posts in support of Gaza, massive cuts at Bell Media, and villagers flee to Goma to avoid the advancing M23 fighters in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Good morning. It's Friday, February 9th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. We start this morning in London, Ontario, with a follow-up story to one I brought you two weeks ago or so. Remember the man who died after a fire alarm kept Amazon workers out of the workplace in frigid temperatures? Well, the London Free Press has a truly dark and twisted follow-up article. Not dark and twisted like a horror movie, more like dark and twisted like our current times are. The headline is this, quote, widow of Amazon worker spared crushing rent hike by landlord. So thankful. It makes me want to fling myself into the frigid waters of the St. Lawrence, frankly. The piece by Beatrice Bellario and Norman De Bono focuses on Sheila Albuquerque, the widow of Paolo de Souza Bezerra, and their one-year-old son. She also works at the Amazon facility, but is currently on maternity leave. The couple have been together for 24 years. Since his death, she will have to move from her two-bedroom apartment to a one-bedroom apartment in the same building due to a massive rent increase that she cannot afford. This is spun as good news because the one-bedroom apartment that she has to move into, despite being too small for a mother and a child, is quote-unquote affordable at $848 per month. Albuquerque is 44 years old, and she says she appreciates the offer from the building to move her to the one-bedroom to be able to live somewhere. She said this, quote, It's a lot of help to have a roof over my head with lower rent. It's a relief, unquote. The authors note that the owner of the building, Jonathan Leahy, after reading about her story in the London Free Press, made the decision to offer her a cheaper unit. She told the paper, quote, I just feel like this is the least we can do, unquote, which he's right. It's the absolute least that they could do. What would be the humane thing to do would let her have the apartment that she lives in and just let her pay lower rent rather than forcing her to move from her home in a moment of extreme grief into a smaller place. But, you know, we never really talk about apartments as people's homes. It's always just like, oh, we can move you there. We can move you there. No problem. It's just an apartment. And, oh, Leahy's other tenants, the ones in two-bedroom apartments, they're being gouged 23% more in rent from $1,625 per month to $2,000 per month. While they are still waiting on results of the autopsy, You know, Amazon could be playing a role in this too. Like, you know, they could be paying this woman a paycheck to give her five years of wages and just say, you know, take your time. This is a horrible moment for you. Like, you know, it's not like they're lacking money or anything. Now, there is a GoFundMe that is set up that you can search for and find if you would like to donate to Sheila Albuquerque and her son. Next, we'll continue on this theme of twisted and tragic to go to Quebec. Elizabeth Rivera and Antoine Bittar's daughter was killed in 2017 when the driver of the car that she was also in was drunk. It crashed. Elizabeth has become an activist since and is the head of a local Mothers Against Drunk Drivers chapter. 
The Montreal couple wants stricter levels for how much blood alcohol you can have while driving. And they were given an opportunity in October to talk with Quebec's transportation minister, Geneviève Guibault. The article from CBC News says that there was a catch. They had to go to a Coalition Avenir Québec cocktail fundraiser, the party that Geneviève Guibault is part of, to be able to talk to her. And to get in, they each had to pay the entry fee of $100. Now, it's necessary to mention that $100 is the total sum that you are allowed to donate to a political party in Quebec in a non-election year. So on top of giving the CAC $100, I'm pretty sure that that would block them from even being able to support any other candidates during a given year. I think. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But anyway, it's the maximum. During election years, the amount is increased to $200. The couple didn't want to go. They didn't want to pay it, but they wanted to meet with Guilbeault. And so eventually they agreed. When they arrived, they were told that they would get two minutes with Guilbeault. Here's how the CBC describes what happened. Quote, so they joined the cocktail, had their two minutes each, and left feeling discouraged and unsupportive. Guilbault remained stoic, unsympathetic, and really had nothing to say in support of the cause, Rivera said, unquote. And that totally tracks, actually. I've seen her in some pretty tragic situations where she has not been able to read the room at all and did not express any empathy whatsoever. This story came out during a hearing on a new road safety bill. Guilbault was at the committee and said that there was no reason for why they had to attend the cocktail, as she would have met with them otherwise. The couple explained that their local MNA, Marilyn Picard, told them that that's how they had to meet her. Now, this is bad news for the CAC, who's been behind in the polls for the first time since they were elected in 2018 to a party that barely exists right now, the Parti Québécois. But Quebecers are fickle, and it is totally possible that they will swing their votes to the PQ if the winds feel right. And if an election was being held tomorrow, uh, the CAC would probably be wiped away and the PQ would rise again. Before this, Legault had talked about changing election financing laws to double the allowable contribution amount. But yesterday, he said that members of his own caucus convinced him to not go ahead with it. Next, news from Nick Seabrook at Rabble. L. Jones, Derrico Simons, and Benazir Urdimi were invited to the Supreme Court to join a delegation that was to present to clerks about the 2022 Halifax Declaration for the Eradication of Racial Discrimination. The delegation was organized by former Governor General Mikhail Jean, and it was to address anti-black racism and the criminal justice system. But hours before the meeting, Jones, Simmons, and Irdimi were told that they couldn't attend the meeting. Supreme Court Registrar Chantal Charbonneau said that they had made quote-unquote controversial posts on social media, and as a result, they were disinvited. Here's what the post says, as quoted by Rabble. Quote, as mentioned to the Right Honourable Michael Jean on Monday morning, we became aware of controversial posts and comments made about the conflict between Israel and Palestine on social media. These posts and comments had negative and concerning effects on a number of our law clerks. As such, we asked that the format be amended to ensure that the focus remained on important topic of racial discrimination in our society. Unquote. Jones told Seabrook that they never actually said which posts were a problem. They never pointed out to anything that the three had posted that could have been considered so offensive that they could not meet with clerks of the Supreme Court. Jones says that this is a clear attack on free expression. It's also anti-black racism and it's also anti-Palestinian racism. A statement sent from Charbonneau to Rabble doesn't make any sense, so I won't quote it. 
said Jones, quote, it is anti-black racism that black people are regularly disciplined for including other people in our analysis. The kind of disciplining and surveillance of black people, the punishment of an exclusion without even evidence given. I mean, that's extremely racist, unquote. Of course, the idea that even posting about Gaza could get you disinvited from presenting to members of the Supreme Court indicates a shocking level of anti-Palestinian bias within Canada's highest legal body. That's bad news for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is, of course, the fact that they will render decisions that will directly impact Palestinians and supporters of Palestine in Canada. Next, Bell is going to cut 9% of its staff including ending local news broadcasts in many parts of Canada. There will be 4,800 jobs lost, 45 radio stations sold off, and they are killing all noon broadcasts except Toronto's. Montreal, Toronto, and Ottawa are the only stations that will keep their weekend shows, and they will also kill CTV's most important show, W5. Now, I got this story from CTV News Montreal, and my heart goes out to them to have to report on their own demise, the demise of their own jobs. What this piece, though, doesn't point out, and I don't really understand why, is how Bell is actually flush with cash. While Bell Media might not be raking in the money, Bell overall made $2.3 billion in profit. $2.3 billion in profit profit, profit, profit in the money that they are making. And to just put that in perspective, that is the total operating budget of CBC Radio Canada. Now, I have to say, over the year and a bit now that I have made this podcast, I see the daily news up close nightly. And CTV News is constantly better, more spread out, and deeper than other national broadcasters. Sometimes, depending on the region, CBC has an edge, but overall, I know I'll find something useful for this podcast at CTV more often than I will at CBC, and certainly more than Global. This is not just a slap in the face of Canadians, nor is it only corporate greed in its purest form, but it's also going to make us all stupider about politics, about understanding Canada, about understanding our communities and telling our own stories. If anyone cares to save this country, and really, who does care? Because Canada sucks. But if you do care about saving this country, you need a nation-building project. Media plays a fundamental role in that, and as it collapses in Canada, so too will social cohesion. We're already seeing it plain as day as it is. Collapsing media is a quiet driver of social disintegration. The next time you hear someone asking why we can't all just get along... Well, the collapse of local media in this country is a key part of the answer, and it's collapsing because people are just trying to get stupid level rich. And finally, to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where thousands of people have fled their homes around the city of Goma. The Congolese army have been fighting with M23, and people have rushed to Goma to seek safety. African News spoke to one person, Olive Luanda, who is from the town of Sake, and who said that the army abandoned their posts when they heard that M23 was advancing. Everyone had no choice but to leave everything and flee. Sake is not that close to Goma. It can take five hours on foot to get there. And even once they're there, it isn't clear that the people will be safe. The DRC's president, Felix Sikedi, was re-elected last December and has not been able to reduce the violence or restore peace. Sikedi has accused Rwanda of funding M23, something that Rwanda vehemently denies, and it has complicated a response for the UN to intervene. 
reports African news. Those are your headlines for Friday, February 9th. Guys, it's Friday. It's Friday. I got tickets to Lisa LeBlanc tonight for Disco Shack at the OSQ. I am so excited. You're probably like, I don't understand any of those words. But maybe if you did understand those words, guess what I'm doing tonight. I hope you have a wonderful and restful weekend. And I hope that you do something super fun. And I'll talk to you on the other side.